1: your eyes on the times you walk ready to speak up but with so many problems you're exhausted trying to keep up
0: this is the church politics podcast where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview we're not trying to be conservative or progressive we're trying to be Christian in the public square and I'm black as heaven I'm made in God's image nobody can change my settings hey man cut off my knees and put it an into my search it's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth With no good, Ann and camp you're listening to the Ann and campaigns Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, I don't know if you're on social media as much as I am, but I know you're on there t- to some extent, mm-hmm. and so I'm sure that you have seen all the memes and jokes and all that stuff going around about this riverboat brawl which I guess was in Montgomery Alabama have you seen that
1: I, I have it's not to say I'm on social media all that much but I, I have seen that
0: yeah it, it's it's been an interesting back and forth I mean it's basically what happened? so for, for those who don't know basically near these riverboats there were two guys who completely were disorderly and they attacked a, I guess he was a security guard, a black, two white guys attacked a black security guard, you know, at this location. Once this happened, you get, you know, you had black folks coming from, you know, other folks that worked with the guy and one dude even swam to, to go help him. You had a whole bunch of African-Americans come and kind of defend the guy. He should have never been attacked. And so I think the defense is fine. You, you, you got to be able to defend people regardless of, you know, what they look like. They, you know, people deserve to defend themselves. And so I think a lot of people are commenting on that. And I and it me for me, Chris, I don't have a problem with bring, bringing levity to the situation, you know, bringing humor to a serious matter. And some of the memes that they're putting out were funny. Nobody died, anything like that. There are some pretty funny memes out there. I think you'd have to be completely without any kind of sense of humor not to uh, crack a smile at some of these memes. My concern is not the levity. My concern is that some folks, I think even some Christians, we're kind of celebrating what happened based on one side beating the other side. At one point, some women were getting punched and hit with chairs and all this other stuff. So levity, I get it. The celebration, I think, is a little bit much. And the line isn't always clear where those two, you know, uh, separate. But just want to hear your thoughts on this riverboat brawl.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, like you said, number one, this, this gentleman should not have been attacked. He was only trying to do his job there at the, at the boat. And this sense, you know, what I see in a lot of the jokes is the sense of some sort of sense of community that is being held up and, and the levity is there. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast. The capacity for comedy to make an opening to uh, say some things that are a little bit difficult to say in public discourse and so for sure I get all of that if there's a serious note to it what I have what I've sort of shared with folks is is actually the same thing that I said about January 6th Justin which is some of the obvious things to say you know corrective things about violence and the the need to like withdraw that from our society in general are there to be said uh but a a real consideration has to be made what is happening in the experience of these individuals, both who are involved in the brawl and who are celebrating it on social media. What's going on in people's real human experience that actually brings them to that place? And I'm, I'm totally comfortable saying that because I said the exact same thing about January
0: 6th. Right. And I think this is another one of those issues where when we see something like this, we do have to have a sense of proximity to. Because, again, it could seem like this is happening next door and that is happening every day. Right. This was in Montgomery. Most of y'all, some of y'all live there. Most of y'all don't live there. This didn't happen right next to you. And so as we assess where our society is at and it's not necessarily in a good place when it comes to race. I think it's a problem if we use that as an example of of where we are. Right. And that can happen because you see, you know, things that happen far away because of social media seem like they're right next to us. So. Like I said, I think the levity, I get it, It's cool. The celebration, not cool. And I think we have to admit that it got out of control. And if the shoe were on the other foot, like if you turn the situations around, how would we react to that? And I think the re- reaction to that would be a little bit different and maybe not even have any levity to it. So anything else, Chris?
1: Yeah, it's something I didn't see it right away because I'm not quite As on social media like that, especially in the weekends, but it is, it's one of those things, you know, where we, we got to really think about what is the state of the, of the race issue in our country when people are responding in that immediate situation and to the overall situation. I don't know that I will join in on the celebration, but there are a lot of people who I've seen celebrating and it, it makes my mind think. What is the the real experience of people on a day to day that puts them in that in that state of mind
0: right what's what's the day to day experience and I think that has to be taken seriously and what also what are some of the narratives out there that might not be so healthy too right? I mean, I think we have to take that in consideration too. Nobody should want to see, you know, because some of the women were trying to grab their husbands like and get out of there. Some were throwing punches. There was a lot of stuff going on. We should never want to see somebody get, you know, hit on in the head with a chair or anything like that. And I don't think that most people, well, I, I can't say most, I don't think a lot of people were saying, you know, were saying that they thought that was okay. I think they were just saying, okay, number one, this is what happens when you have your man's back and then there were some jokes that went along with that but we i just want people to be aware of that that line right that levity versus the celebration line i think it's important not to be a party pooper but i do think that's important because if we give into a mentality where we want to see other people treated poorly or assaulted or something like that even if they started it right or even if a, a certain part of the group started it then we can have ourselves in a in a pretty bad place and i know that's not a popular thing to say but you know me i don't necessarily worry too much about that we've been talking about this for a while and and really if you haven't seen it yet man you got to check it out even you know it's even something to watch with your bible study group uh your 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 sunday school group whatever which is the the how i got over docu series starring christopher butler where we talk about the authority of scripture in the black church the role that it played you know there is a filthy lie going around that the authority of scripture is just kind of like a a white evangelical thing. And I think in many instances, when you look at the black church, when you look at other traditions, you see it done sometimes in a better way, especially when it comes to social action, a better application from different traditions. And so I think people need to see how the authority of scripture was applied to the arts, to the social engagement and to the establishment of the black church. So check that out when you get a chance. All right also want to, as always, give a shout out to our patrons, our supporters. If you go to patreon.com slash church politics, you can support us and it could be $5. It could be a thousand regardless, you know, we need that support and we appreciate it. And if you become a patron, then you get premium episodes. And so we'll have a premium episode after this for those who are patrons. So go check that out and, and be supporters. Don't just sit on the sideline, show us some love and support The content that we are putting out. But let's get into it. We got a lot to talk about. So grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think, not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Chris, and you know this better than I, before we take communion, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 28 tells us to examine ourselves to scrutinize our motives and actions, to make sure that they are in line with the significance of the Lord's Supper. And from reading the Bible and my reading of the Bible, that should also be a general practice. Individually and collectively, we must test ourselves, engage in introspection, soul searching and confession. And a couple times in these past few episodes, Chris, we've discussed the subject of Self-examination and being able to admit that our ethnicity, culture, ideological tribe or political party gets things wrong sometimes. I mean that's not something that we do often enough in my opinion. honest self-examination, honest intergroup examination are both important because if we just pay attention to our narratives, they will have us believing that we're always the good guy, and if we do something wrong. It must have been because the other side didn't give us a choice. We, we didn't have another option. That's usually how the narrative goes. Even when we read scripture, if you're anything like me, we tend to interpret it through the lens of the protagonist. We're always Daniel in the lion's den. We're always David against Goliath. We're always Jesus and the disciples versus the Pharisees. We're never the folks who put Daniel in the lion's den. We're never Goliath. We're never the Pharisees. Of course not. Well, I think, Chris, that reality is a little more complicated. And this dynamic becomes even more pronounced when someone like Trump comes onto the scene. At that point, his opponents really can do no wrong. All of our faults are kind of absorbed into one person or one group. And what we do pales in comparison to how bad they are. Again, in reality... These people might be dangerous, these people might be corrupt, but their faults, Chris, do not absolve us. Their transgressions don't purify us. We could still be harming others too. Now in a New York Times article, David Brooks asks a question that I think all Christians should consider from time to time. He asked this, what if we're the bad guys? Now the establishment and the professional class, m- many of whom David Brooks is writing to. We're not very happy with this article, Chris. And if you do a quick Twitter search of of the responses, you'll see that very quickly. But here's what he says in the article. He said, Donald Trump seems to be indicted on a weekly basis, yet he is utterly dominating his Republican rivals in the polls. And he is tied with Joe Biden in the general election surveys. Trump's poll numbers are stronger against Biden now than at any time in 2020. and We talked about that last week. So he asks, what's going on here? Why is this guy still politically viable after all that he has done? I asked that same question last week. He goes on to say that we anti-Trumpers often tell a story to explain that. It was encapsulated in a quote by a North Carolina professor and political scientist, Mark Hetherington, who said, Republicans see a world changing around them uncomfortably fast, and they want it to slow down, maybe even take a step backwards. In this story, we anti Trumpers are the good guys, the forces of progress and enlightenment. The Trumpers are reactionary bigots and authoritarians. Brooks says that he partly agrees with that story, but he admits that it's also a monument to elite self satisfaction. He asks us to consider a different narrative. He said that the story begins in the 1960s when high school grads had to go off to fight in Vietnam, but the children of the educated class got college deferments. The idea that we're all in this together was replaced with the reality that the educated class lives in a world up here and everybody else is forced into a world down there. He then talks about the modern meritocracy or what's supposed to be a meritocracy. He says that we built an entire social order that sorts and excludes people on the basis of the quality that we possess most academic achievement. And if you look at polls, Chris, we can talk about this a little later. You do see a separation based on education, differences in education. He goes on to talk about how journalism used to be a working class profession. Now it's an elite college dominated profession. We also segregated ourselves into urban hubs in Chicago and Atlanta and San Francisco and so on and left others in not really rural places, but the towns that are are, are falling apart or where the industry left and and all those things. He quotes Michael Lind and says this elite graduates monopolize the best jobs. And at the same time, invent new technologies that privilege super skilled workers, making the best jobs better and all the other jobs worse. Armed with all kinds of economic, cultural, and political power, we support policies that help ourselves. Free trade makes the products we buy cheaper, and our jobs are unlikely to be moved to China. Open immigration makes our service staff cheaper, but new, less educated immigrants aren't likely to put downward pressure on our wages. So basically, as wages go down and all this, people in this privileged class, this professional class, are not impacted in the same way that working class people are. Rather than fixing that, we just call them names and say they're bigoted rather than really dealing with the issues that they're going through. You and I, I think, have been exposed to both sides of this divide to some extent. We both grew up, in the working class, and we've worked since then with the professional class. Now, I would even say that we probably have family members who are on the losing side of this dynamic. The one difference is us being African Americans, they're probably most of them probably aren't Trump supporters, right? But we've been able to see the winners and the losers and have intimate relationships with the winners and the losers of this dynamic. And I think the question that David Brooks proposes is one that Americans in general especially Christians need to be asking ourselves uh, what are your thoughts on this article Chris
1: yeah I mean I so very appreciate this article I, I think that David Brooks probably writes this article in the form of, of introspection and question asking to get people to to look at it but I think it's is very much on the line and it's one of those things where you know, and and, and Brooks actually gets to it toward the end of the article. He quotes a, a sociologist who says that, hist- that history is a graveyard of classes, which have preferred caste privileges to leadership. Mm. I really think, you know, at some point, I, I won't say soon, but at some point, somebody is going to recognize that we are more in this political moment in a class struggle, even than we are in a race struggle. And that is going to Chris, be a difficult Chris. Chris. Time. Chris.
0: Chris. 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 Let me stop you right there, bro. You know, you are never supposed to say that. Do you? Do I you know. know? Hold on. No. 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 I don't. I don't think you understand. <laughs> do you know the type of narratives that you dismantle when you say something like that? Please, recon- I'm gonna give you. Let's give Chris, audience, give him some grace. We're gonna give Chris a few seconds to reconsider what he says, and then we can go back. All right, Chris, restate what you said. I just want to make sure that you know what what you're saying, man. Go, go, go ahead. You can. Restate.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it with a bit more, even a bit more clarity. the The Trump electoral dynamic that swept Donald Trump into the White House in 2016 was, in part, at least, a lot of folks who fit into this this community of what do we now call Trumpers who were not participating in elections. And then Donald Trump ran and they went to participate in the election. Now, I think that on both sides of the political aisle, folks have not truly recognized that the great struggle that our society is in right now is not a race struggle, but a class struggle. For that reason, Nobody has really taken the the political approach of engaging folks. Like you mentioned, right? Like both of us have family members who are on the losing side of this struggle. They are not Trump supporters because there's a lot of racial dynamic on that side that I, my cousins are not ever going to enter into, but they are also not active democratic voters. They are political non-participants mm. and When somebody recognizes that there is an opening to create coalition that actually meaningfully engages some of the the sort of cultural values of those political non-participants and bring those political non-participants into our politics with the same vigor and gusto as the, the folks on that side of this class struggle, but in the other racial camp, that could create if anybody ever figures that out, that creates a political coalition that I don't even know that the that the professional classes, even with all of the, the money and the donations and all what you have, I don't know that once that coalition exists, if that coalition ever exists, I don't know that that's something that the professional classes can even overcome. And and it's something that I try to talk to the professional classes about a lot because we assume that it could never happen. And it certainly tough to do but if it ever does it will be a powerful political dynamic it's
0: going it's to be a serious a serious serious realignment so okay you made a you made a good say, and, and i'll be honest with you i've always thought i do think there was a racial component to why some people voted for trump i think that's true yeah. but i always thought that that explanation was too simplistic i thought it was bigger than that because you have the exp- how he expanded the electorate you talked about that but you also had people who voted for obama you had the Obama-Trump voter, right? Mm-hmm. Some people who voted for Obama then vote for Trump. And we had Obama in office for, you know, for two terms, right? So, I mean, that doesn't mean everything was solved when it comes to race, but it does say something, right? And so even if there was some backlash, what there may have been from some people, I've never thought that completely explains everything. If you like simplistic narratives that allow you know, your argument to be stronger, then you can run with that. But I think there are some good indicators that that wasn't the whole of the story. And people need to realize that. Now, if you if you read and I, I encourage everybody to read David Brooks's article, but if you read the article, he's not letting Trump vote, voters off the hook.
1: Yeah,
0: Right. In fact, I think he's saying that while it's possible that the keepers of this pseudo meritocracy are wrong, Trump supporters can also be responding wrongly, too. Right. That doesn't justify how they've responded, but it may help us understand that we are. All have a role to play. Not everybody, but many of us have a role to play in what's going on in this dynamic. Maybe people have been mistreated. Maybe when we sent all the jobs overseas and wrecked all these smaller towns and all that stuff. Maybe that did have an effect on people and maybe it did sour them to the process or sour them to the establishment. And they wanted somebody who will tear all that stuff down. It's something to think about. But we have to ask ourselves ourselves this could we be the bad guy question? Because I don't think we can just take for granted, number one, our narratives and take for granted that we're doing the right thing, that we haven't impacted people in a negative in a negative way. Chris.
1: Yeah, for sure. There's, this quote from the movie, The American President, which I'm, I'm not always quoting movies, especially not that one. But uh, I love this. Uh, Michael J. Fox uh, character says to the president. Um, in, in one of the climactic scenes, he says people want leadership, Mr. President. And in the absence of genuine leadership, they'll listen to anyone who steps up to the microphone. They want leadership. They're so thirsty that they'll crawl through the sand towards a mirage. They'll crawl through the desert toward a mirage. And when they discover that there's no water, they'll drink the sand. And I think that's a little bit of the Trump dynamic, in my opinion. Like, I, I agree with Brooks that at least he insinuates that Trump's not the leader, that this nation needs, that this movement needs, but right. there is a movement in our country that does need leadership. And we shouldn't ignore that. We should be trying to figure out how to actually lead in a direction that brings more people into a into a space of like a healthy experience in life. And and this this is the place where I probably get off the class war class struggle train, right? I don't think that it's inevitable to to just constantly have uh, class struggle and class warfare. But I do think it is incumbent upon people uh, across this sort of range of classes, races, geography, all that type of thing, to really move toward a, a true sentiment of justice and righteousness, and and really not just think about yourself, right, but think about how do we bring more people, something closer to a majority of people into a space of general well-being where life is not such a pain uh, and a struggle? I don't think neither me or nor
0: Chris are the folks who are always blaming everything on a class struggle. But it's very clear if you look at the numbers, if you look at the, the polls, that there is a divide in america and most of that divide in america much of that divide in america is based on education so you can look at people's salaries you can look at how people are voting you can look at people which we'll talk about a little later people marrying who gets married who stays married who has kids while they're married who has kids before they're married a lot of that is breaking down to education and again the working class people are are left in a, in a, in a tough position. The other thing that he brings up, which again is connected to something that we'll talk about later is the professional class will change the mores of society. They'll change the morals of society through their writing, through their influence and all that, but then not do what they've freed other people to do. Right. So they'll say marriage isn't that great of a thing. Go ahead, have kids whenever you want to yet. They're not preaching what they practice. Is that, is that how it goes? Yeah when you look at their lives, they're actually are having kids while they're married. They actually are getting married and staying, you know what I'm saying? Things of that nature. Yeah. But the, but when you put into pop culture that it's okay not to do these things, it's working class people that it attaches to and they have to deal with the consequences of
1: it. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that those words made their way onto the pages of the New York Times because I have been saying this to people since, I mean, at least for like 10 or 12 years. When I first started working more in inside of politics in Chicago and Illinois and meeting some of the folks who fund organizations and fund campaigns, I've been saying this to folks in in the community forever, right? Like you're going to go to college and you're going to read books and listen to professors who tell you, you don't need to get married. You don't need to honor your family history and the traditions of your parents and grandparents. You don't need to honor the the faith tradition that you receive. You're gonna hear all that stuff. But trust me, these are people who have pictures of their great great grandmother in their parlor and they're married and they go to mass on Sunday. Right? So just think about that when you're hearing all this. And I've been saying this for at least a decade. So I'm really, really happy that David Brooks wrote it on the page of the New York Times.
0: A good article. He took some hits for it. But in this day and age, man, let me say this. You talk about leadership. If you're not willing to take some hits to say what's necessary, there's no need for you to be in the game. As you said before, Trump has has really only manipulated a void of leadership, which I think for all of us who are who are in this kind of quote unquote thought leader space is something that we need to think about. We will be right back on the Church Politics podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend. Christopher Butler. And I feel bad, Chris, because I didn't I didn't tell you this before before we started this recording. But I have my own announcement to make today. And that announcement is that I'm leaving the and campaign and the church politics podcast to work for UPS effective, (laughs) effective immediately. And here's why. As rising living costs strain household budgets, labor tensions have boiled over, leading to a unionization campaigns at Starbucks and other companies and strikes across the country, says BBC. The threat of a strike by the Teamsters union hit UPS in recent weeks as customers diverted about one million packages per day to rival companies, costing the company about 200 million in sales, Whew. Now that's a strike for you. That's that that that'll that'll do it. According to Yahoo News, Chris, after uh, contract negotiations this summer, full time drivers for UPS saw their salaries boosted from one hundred and forty five thousand dollars a year to one hundred and seventy thousand dollars annually, including benefits, according to data shared by the shipping company on a recent call. The public has has noticed this, though, Chris. Job site Indeed reported a 50% surge in searches for UPS or United Parcel Service within a week of the new contract. And that was reported also by Bloomberg. The largest union in the nation, Teamsters, recently bargained for a historical contract on behalf of UPS. While not every worker is getting that hefty salary, part-time workers also won a pay raise of around $21 hourly, and employees were finally able to have better conditions like air conditioning. The contract sets a new standard in the labor movement and raises the bar for all workers, said Teamster uh, General President Sean M. O'Brien in a statement. Now, this is really connected to what we just talked about. We were talking about the working class Part of what's happening when it comes to these class issues, when it comes to wages, because wages dropping is a big part of this, is the lack of worker power. And so as unions fell off and and, and you, you, unions weren't blameless, there was racism, there was other things going on with unions. But as unions fell off, you see these corporations get stronger and stronger and the workers get weaker and weaker. In recent months, maybe in the last year or so, you've seen a push for more unionization a push to say, "Hey, we need to use our leverage to get more for workers." When you hear about this UPS, the threat of a strike, you hear about how much money UPS lost, uh, and then you hear about this deal that was made. What, what, what are you thinking on that, Chris?
1: I definitely, you know, pay very close attention to the UPS effort. As as a former UPS employee, I was very sensitive to to that. For about a year, I had loaded trucks at UPS back in the times of like 19 or 20 years old. So I very much paid attention to this. I think it's very good that they were able to get this done uh, because it's such a large corporation. This this would have been the largest strike in modern history. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's great to see worker power sort of catching fire in this way. Reading the article, I was a little perplexed because it seemed like to me that the article wrote President Biden into this narrative. I, I thought his campaign
0: manager wrote it, actually. <laughs> I thought in that Yahoo article, his campaign manager was like ghostwriting the the article.
1: Yeah, it, it, it wrote the Biden administration a little bit too complimentary. For my taste, President Biden ran promising to be the most pro-union president in history. And he is running for re-election, probably can say that he's been the most pro union president in recent history. Which is which is saying um, nothing,
0: actually. But
1: exactly. you <laughs> know, is saying nothing. That's that's the point. It's like my brother, right? My the my little brother right up under me is the tallest of the Butler brothers, and there are four of us. But he is not quite six feet. And so, you know, he's the tallest of his brothers, but probably not, you know, was never gonna be like an NBA prospect, right? And so at, at some point, it's got to be more than uh, you know, most pro-union in, in, in recent history, but actually been pro-union enough. Uh, and the article also doesn't mention, which I think is the most important part, uh, is that the actual first step in the Teamsters getting this union victory was actually kicking out their more pro-management, uh, or at least management-friendly leadership. So. In the 2021 union election, the current president, Sean O'Brien, ran against the former president and his whole campaign was that he was going to be more militant, that he was going to be more aggressive with management and that he was going to be more willing to strike even in these large instances with big corporations. And... That's where this whole thing started, and I think that's very important. Having worked with you know labor unions and trying to get political endorsements and all that type of thing, there is this growing sort of disconnect between the rank and file union worker and the union leadership that is you know that that's leading these unions. So I, I think that the 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 very important step with this Teamsters strike. Or potential strike that was averted. Even when you look at the, the Amazon workers organizing, the Starbucks workers organizing, which is two of the things that have given some of the energy to this labor resurgence over the last year, 18 months. A lot of this is happening outside of, you know, traditional union leadership. And so as a more pro worker union leadership emerges, you see this more aggressive stance. Which allows for more victories, and in, in, in most of these cases, you know, I do have to give President Biden his just desserts, right? Like he has put in a slightly more uh, union-friendly labor relations board. He certainly hasn't used his rhetoric to, you know, to talk down unions like previous presidents. He he has been willing to talk pro-worker, and and that's not for nothing. He is the president of the United States. There is a lot more that could be done to help workers have their just sort of power. And again, I want to say this for me is not coming from, you know, like this whole, I'm, I'm not a Marxist. This is not coming from like, Hey, you know, we got to have the, the class war and, you know, final struggle and all that type of stuff, but workers do need to have a voice in the marketplace. Otherwise, the marketplace is actually out of balance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's how we get to some of the inequities that we see in our culture.
0: Yeah, there has to be a check. I mean, I hope we all get that. There has to be a check on corporate power and allowing the workers to to have some leverage. I mean, people should know that. Now, the interesting thing, I agree with you, part of the problem has been union leadership. I mean, some of the things that unions are endorsing Why are we endorsing something that, number one, is against what a lot of the people in the union believe? And number two, has nothing to do with our industry. So you have unions endorsing abortion. You have unions endorsing all this other stuff. And it's like, Hmm. no, you actually might even have more leverage if you don't just go along with everything that the Democrats tell you to do. And so I'd like to see us. And we're not there yet, but I like that. I would like to see the unions get to a point where. You're focusing on your workers and not bringing other issues in the mix that really just make you in line with the you know the secular progressive agenda, which many of those things are again elite values being imposed on the people that you're supposed to be representing. Yeah, something to think about and something that I think has been pr- problematic over time. But for me, given the imbalance that we've seen in our economy when it comes to the lack of worker power this is something that i think a lot of people should should applaud now are there have there been circumstances are there still circumstances where unions could possibly be in the wrong and they absolutely but right now we have an imbalance and if we don't give workers more power if we don't give people opportunity to make a wage that allows them to take care of their families then we're going to be in trouble and that's going to come back on everybody not just not just the people who are suffering right now eventually that comes back on everybody and hopefully we don't have to find out but we got a long way to go to get out of the hole that we're in anything else chris
1: yeah i mean i i just will say again that i i think you know even if you're like you know not politically inclined to be so pro-union just think about it more as like a democratic approach to the market right this is basically the idea that the workers should be able to have a voice, right? Like you can't you can't design an economy and a marketplace where people become kind of like soulless, voiceless automatons that just get plugged into machinery to do work. That's not a very compassionate or humane approach uh, to the economy. And so we should be thinking about ways to make it so that that workers have a voice. And in the workplace and in the economy.
0: Right. And I think hopefully we found out that the invisible hand of the market is not the Holy Spirit. It hasn't been able to work everything out in the ways that some people suppose that it would. Well, at the same time, I don't think more government power over all this is is the way to go either empower the workers yeah so so you know me and chris are not saying more we got to give the government all the power and let them control the corporations no empower the workers and this and i'll be honest some of this comes from michael lynn empower the workers so that they can get what what they deserve uh i think i think that's the best way forward. we will be right back on the church politics podcast and we are back on the church politics podcast well there was an article in unheard which is a, an online uh, publication and it said this it said that americans who are married with children are now leading happier and more prosperous lives on average than men and women who are single and childless is that statement surprising to you it asks Well, in an age that prizes individualism, workism, and a host of other self-centric isms above marriage and family, it may well be. But the reality is that nothing currently predicts happiness in life better than a good marriage. Now, you and I know plenty of people who are not married, who who are happy. I don't think the conclusion here is that you have to be married uh, to be happy or that marriage guarantees happiness. But, Chris, it was interesting how this and I think it was a University of Chicago study, if I'm not mistaken, It's interesting how this study seems to go against a lot of the narratives that we hear. These individualistic narratives that say, hey, just do you work hard and and everything else will, will take care of itself. And that's not exactly the truth. There may be something to. Those old traditional values that 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 we grew up uh, with uh, I- any thoughts on that, chris
1: I have tried to say this over and over again. I mentioned in the last book you know some of these things that have been with us for a long time for sure, there are things that are held in place by oppression right like men mankind is sinful, and we get together and invent a lot of wretched stuff, but some of it has. Stayed around because it's actually helpful, and I think marriage is one of those things. I'm I'm glad that this research is coming and it's helpful, but I also think you know, part of what the research says to me is that it reinforces something that I say to like parishioners and stuff all the time. Listen to your grandmother, right? <laughs> like listen to your great grands, like. The ones who are telling you stuff like, you know, hey, settle down, get married and don't let your job become everything and all those types of that wisdom doesn't have to come from the University of Chicago. We have it in our families, in our churches and inside of our own traditions. I hope that not only does this point people to the fact that not every narrative that you're hearing from like the most, quote unquote, progressive minds in our culture are actually helpful. But I hope it also reinforces this idea that a lot of the wisdom that we need to build a healthy life, we actually have it in our own families, in our own traditions, in our own churches.
0: No, that's good. The other thing that it brings up, because I think, you know, you go back to the 50s and before that and all that, there were things that needed to probably be improved about marriage, right? I mean, there, there were things that maybe we had, you know, we had taken too far or. People who weren't who were being marginalized within marriage or outside of marriages. And those things need to be needed to be corrected. But again, I've said this before. In so many instances, our society does a bad job of making corrections. Mm -hmm. And basically, they just throw the the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Uh, We need to learn that certain institutions need to be improved, but they don't need to necessarily be scrapped. And I don't know. You know, the sad thing is. Instead of proving things right now, I think we're at a place, especially in pop culture, where where things are going to have to get worse until we rediscover the meaning behind or the reason behind what we had. Yeah. Right now, that can obviously be turned into everything in the past was good. No, mm-hmm. that's not what we're saying. But we should have enough discernment, and we should be nuanced enough to be able to kind of look through the rubble of what we've we we've kind of destroyed. And see what actually did have purpose and meaning for our lives and see how we can improve those things. But again, I think we're at a point right now where we look at everything that's older and assume that it's bad and can't see the value in it. And I want us not to have to rediscover things that in the process of rediscovering the good and rediscovering what institutions had values, a lot of things and people are going to get lost. A lot of things and people are going to get harmed in that. So I think one of the jobs of Christians is to help people understand the value of certain institutions that society might be trying to scrap because society doesn't have a clear understanding of their value of their purpose. This, I think, shows us that even though we know Marriage isn't, isn't for everybody. Not everybody's called to that. In some instances, people are called to singleness and there is a beauty and value in that as well. Chris, anything else?
1: I'll just, because uh, I think you're 100% right about that. The goal of the Christian witness been to hold up that value that are in these traditions. and And I will just once more really urge people to turn to other resources, right? Like again, like I love the fact that University of Chicago did this research that is available to you. But universities are not the only resources that we can draw from. There are old sermons and older people and writings that exist in the church in our own communities. When you look at those resources and when you talk to those people. It's not like they didn't know that things needed to change in some of these spaces and institutions in society. I always think about one of the elders here in my church who grew up in the South, and he's the person who I talk to maybe the most about like our police and violence issues, right? Because nobody is more familiar with and angry about like police misconduct and brutality than somebody, a Black man who grew up in the South, Right. And so he knows that needs to change. He's, he's not endorsing, don't do anything about that, but he still yeah. maintains values of public order. Right. And those two things can coexist. And honestly, maybe I haven't read far enough, Justin, but I think especially inside of the black church tradition, there are very few resources, historical resources that hold these two realities together with such Skill is another reason why, again, like people need to go watch uh, the How I Got Over docuseries, because there are resources that hold these two things together where we can pursue social justice without just like becoming slaves to every sort of like inclination of of human desire and all, all those types of things. Like we can pursue economic justice without throwing away principles of hard work and personal responsibility. So I, I just urge people to go to those resources also, really draw from them. There's a lot of language, there's a lot of wisdom, and there's good demonstration and example about how to do this well.
0: That's right. I mean, we have to have the dexterity to hold on to what is good and change what what's not good and needs to be reformed. We We hear Christian thinkers say that over and over again, and we need to be smart enough to do that Regardless of what our ideological tribe tries to push us to do, if our ideological tribe tries to push us to keep everything that benefits us
1: mm-hmm.
0: or what it tells us just to destroy everything around us, Christians should know that neither of those are absolute answers to every single issue. All right. All right. Ann camp. Well, thank you again for joining us. On the Church Politics podcast, as usual, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing and neither faithful witnesses who love social justice but won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time. Kennedy, I'll let you.